So we've been, if you're new to St. Peter's, we've been uh, working through the book of Daniel. We come to chapter 3 tonight, and we're going to read the whole chapter. So Daniel chapter 3 from verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, "'You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages,' That when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, Lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, that's Babylonians, came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Amen. Well, let's turn to God and pray again. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you now, as we sit here tonight, we come to acknowledge our need for your forgiveness and repentance, our need to repent. Uh, we think about uh, the difference between your character and our character. Uh, we're reminded that you're the God who is slow to anger. And yet so often we can be so quick to get angry, sinfully angry. Uh, you're the God who is rich in love. But our hearts are often so cold to you and to one another, and you are good to all. But we are so prone to show favoritism and, and treat those who are not just like us with indifference. 
And so tonight we confess that in these ways and in many other ways we have sinned against you. We've sinned by what we've done and what we've left undone. And so tonight in the quiet we pause and we come to you directly. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we come now to your word, we thank you. Thank you for the certainty and the, the fruitfulness that your word is able to create in our lives. And we come now to delight in it. And we pray, make us like a tree planted by streams of water. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, A Hidden Life is one of the best films that uh, I've seen in the past few years. It is directed by Terence Malick. Some of you might have seen this film. And it tells the story of Franz Jagerstatter. Um, he was a farmer. He was a, a devout Catholic. And he refused to fight for the Nazis in World War II. And watching that film... Um, um, the, the score, the, the musical accompaniment to that film, it is almost as stunning as the setting. The score is almost as stunning as the setting. The, the Austrian countryside that Franz lives in, it, it serves as a contrast to the, the brutality that he stands against. And his whole life is blown apart by his refusal to enlist. And he's ostracized by his community. He wrestles with the consequences for, of this decision for his family. And because it's such a wonderful film, I'm not going to say any more. Um, a Hidden Life. Now, Daniel chapter 3 is a story of resistance. And it's the story of three men who refuse to obey a tyrant. But I think there's, as we begin, there's one big difference between reading this chapter and watching that film. And the difference is this, we are not casual observers. As we hear God's word tonight, we are being invited into Daniel chapter 3. We are being invited into this story and we are being called to the same kind of commitment that the three men in this story show. And so as we look at these verses, what I want us to do is, is consider the chapter from the perspective of Daniel's friends. The perspective of Daniel's friends. There are three things I want us to see. Uh, that's good because three friends. The three things, and the first is this, the arrogance they face. The arrogance they face. And I think as we begin, as we look at this chapter, there's a real sense of irony um, in the opening verses. If you were here last week, um, or if you've read Daniel chapter 2, then you can know why. Nebuchadnezzar had just had a dream, and he'd had a dream about a great image but in verse 1, he decides he wants to build a great image. He wants to build a great statue. He's just praised Daniel's God. But now he's committing idolatry. 
And he's demanding that other people do exactly the same thing. And there's a real sense of defiance. I think we see this in even just the elements. And the image uh, that he saw in his dream was made up of all kinds of different elements of varying value and worth. But his, his statue, his image is made of pure gold. And by our measurements, it's 90 feet high and nine feet wide, so it wouldn't fit in here. Um, it would be kind of, I don't know, the chest would be in the middle of the roof, something like that. It's huge. And once he's built it, he demands a show of absolute loyalty. He, he summons the satraps, the prefects, and all the rest to come and assemble before the statue. And then in verse 4, well, the herald lifts his voice and says, whoever you are, you need to know that when you hear music, you have to bow down. You have to worship. And by the way, if you don't, well, your life is over. Now, I wonder tonight if we actually see just how dark these verses are. If we really see it, I think it's possible to, to read these opening verses of this chapter and just kind of think, well, that's the sort of thing that happened in um, Old Testament times, doesn't really apply to us today, and so on. But what is this? This is a demand to conform. This is a demand for total uniformity. This is a summons to do what you are told. This is a, a request to give up your autonomy. And it is a request to put your face in the ground. And this is one individual imposing his will on everyone else. One man getting to decide how everyone else needs to behave, insisting on it. There is no freedom here. This is slavish. This is state-supported arrogance. Now, one of the uh, questions that Christians have thought about for, for centuries is, how do we relate to um, civil authorities? How do we um, relate to those in political power? And one of the passages that Christians turn to when thinking about this is Romans chapter 13. And we're called in that chapter to obey civil authorities. And when there are good leaders, when there are people like the queen, well, it's all quite straightforward and easy, isn't it? But that is not all that the Bible says about the state. Sometimes political power is used to oppress. Sometimes political power can become brutal. It can become animalistic. And if you read the, the later chapters of Revelation, well, you see this. Babylon. Babylon is not just an ancient empire. Babylon comes to symbolize the state totally and utterly opposed to God and to the people of God. 
And we see this in the text. After the Jews have been spoken against in verse 8, and Nebuchadnezzar has been reminded of his own proclamation, and the three men have been identified to the authorities, and he has been told, well, they pay you no attention. Look at his final question at the end of verse 15. Can you see the arrogance of that question? Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now, I don't know what the future holds, but maybe a time will come when Christians in this country see something similar to these verses. We might not be threatened with death, Maybe just a pressure to conform. In many ways, that kind of thing is happening now, isn't it? And yet, even in these verses, I want to show you that that Nebuchadnezzar is actually being mocked here. Nebuchadnezzar is being mocked here. Many people have pointed out that there is is an element of, of satire in these verses. What do I mean by that? Well, do you see um, all the titles you see the titles of those who are summoned? They're, they're mentioned in verse 2, then they're repeated in verse 3. Uh, the same thing happens with the, the instruments, all this big list of instruments, including bagpipes. We didn't know they were in the Bible, did we? And it's almost tedious to read them. It's almost tedious to read them. It's the writer's way of saying these people think what they're doing is really, 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 really important keeps on mentioning all the different names of people, all the different instruments to try and make his point. But there's another thing. Did you notice in verse 1 that Nebuchadnezzar made this statue? Friends, that's something worth ridiculing. These people are being called to worship something that is lifeless. It's deaf, it's dumb, it's mute. And if Professor Traub was here, I think he's watching at home, he would tell us that in Hebrew, in the the Hebrew translation of this passage, the verb set up, it is used a number of times in the the opening uh, verses, the verb set up is repeated nine times in the first 18 verses, six of those in verses one to seven. So Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't just make this image, he set it up, he set it up, he set it up, he set it up. Maybe you can hear what that's emphasizing. I think it's reminding us that that human power is like that. It has a tendency for for self-inflation, for overreaching. There is actually a whole lot of hot air in these verses. And human power can be like that. It has what some have called braggadocio. Some of you might remember um, Mussolini's facial expression, the kind of jutting jaw thing he used to do. Or um, maybe um, I saw these pictures when I was a, a pupil. My history teacher showed us pictures of Hitler practicing actions to accompany his speeches. They look really ridiculous if you look them up online. And we need to realize, I think, sometimes the best way to respond to 
human power that is on steroids is to mock it, to see through it so that we can stand against it. So that's the first thing, the arrogance God's people face. Notice secondly, though, the loyalty they show, the loyalty they show. Now, um, loyalty is a funny kind of thing, and we all have different personalities. Some people are kind of fiercely loyal to certain coffee shops or supermarkets or football teams. Um, Other people are different. They don't mind where the coffee comes from as long as it contains caffeine. They don't care who they support. They just want to win. They'll drive for miles and miles to find the cheapest petrol. But before we look at the, the loyalty of Daniel's friends, notice the, what we might call the pseudo-loyalty. Pseudo-loyalty of those people who are mentioned in verse 8. And they all come to the king, don't they? They come and remind him of his own proclamation. They come and tell him, you need to follow through on that proclamation. I think we're seeing, in in a way, how weak Nebuchadnezzar is here. But we're also seeing that that around powerful men, there will often be sycophants. There will be flatterers. There will be people who kind of prop them up. This group come forward. They say, O king, live forever. Remember your decree. People are ignoring you. A certain group of people are just not listening to what you say. And it's like lighting a fuse, isn't it? The dynamite explodes in verse 13. Three men are brought into the presence of the king and the interrogation begins. And what's interesting here is that in verse 16, when they they give their reply, this is the very first thing that these three men have said in this whole book so far. And there is not a moment's hesitation as they speak, is there? Look how calm, look how settled they are. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If you throw us into the fire, the God we serve is able to deliver us. But if not, we'll still not bow down and worship. What these Old Testament saints are doing is is declaring their loyalty. They are standing before this king and they are pledging their allegiance to another king, to a higher throne. They're committed to him. They're not going to bend. They're not going to do that no matter how powerful the opposition, no matter what he is willing to do to them. Maybe as you think about these guys, maybe you've got a question. Uh, I think the obvious question is, where is Daniel? Um, If you're thinking uh, or wondering about that, well, remember what I said last week. In chapters 2 to 7, this chunk that we're in at the moment, there are lots of connections between the different chapters. Uh, Chapter 2 is similar to chapter 7. Chapter 4 is similar to chapter 5. And chapter 3 is similar to chapter 6. And what is chapter 6 of Daniel? It is Daniel 
and the lion's den. The one story that everyone remembers, isn't it? And so just as these three men, just as they had a moment of decision, just as they faced death, Daniel is going to face death too. Now I find um, these friends, these men, I find them inspiring. These men are heroes, aren't they? And we need heroes in the Christian life, people to look up to. We need profiles in courage. And they find themselves into the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. But I think we, I think we miss their significance if we simply think of them as inspiring. If we simply think that these are the kind of people that are kind of super believers, people who, who do things that you and I could never do. No, they're not just inspiring. They are instructing us. Not just inspiring, instructive. Because what they're doing is reminding all of us of something that every Christian knows they're reminding us that there is something worse than death. They're reminding us that it is better to die than to deny the faith. Now, I couldn't help thinking of Esther when I read these words, if I perish, I perish. I couldn't help thinking of the words of Jesus, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And yet you and I, we live in a world that thinks that these men, that that kind of thing is just crazy, don't we? And yet even if you and I, if we're never, even if you and I never have to face the kind of moment that these men face, we are still called to, what does Paul say, die daily. We are called to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow Jesus. And what that will mean is lots of many deaths. Lots of many deaths before our final day. Small decisions, small actions. But each one of them precious to God. Each one of them a little way of saying, I love Jesus Christ. I want him to be honored in my life. Friends, we should never think of these things as being insignificant. And in First Peter, um, which in many ways is a kind of companion to Daniel, it's kind of like the New Testament version of Daniel, I think, in many ways. Peter, who struggled to take up his cross. Peter, who had to be told by Jesus that it was necessary? Well, he says this, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Don't think this wasn't in the agreement. No, says Peter, rejoice when that happens to you because you participate in the sufferings of Christ. And when you suffer trials, Peter says, think Trinity. See, listen to how he goes on. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God 
rests upon you. Friends, that is the topsy-turvy nature of the Christian life. There is pain in the Christian life. And yet there is also so much privilege. And so you and I have a choice tonight. Will we stay distinctive? Will we follow the example of these men or will we compromise? In view of God's mercy, will we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God? This is what God is is calling us to tonight. And even though their choice was an individual one, I want us to see that they had help to live like this. They had each other, didn't they? And one of the reasons that you and I, we come to church each week is to encourage each other. I was going to say keep each other um, spiritually warm tonight. It's physically warm as well, sitting with each other, isn't it? It's pretty chilly tonight. But the Christians sitting around you tonight, they need you to keep going. They need you to help them resist temptation. They need you to help them face trials and suffering. And you and I, we can stand for Jesus, I think only sometimes when we know that our brothers and sisters are standing with us. So we've seen the arrogance that believers face. We've seen the loyalty they show. There's a final thing. As we look at kind of verses 19 to the end, we see the rescue they experience. The rescue they experience. I mentioned A Hidden Life, a great film at the beginning of this sermon. And I think if this um, chapter was filmed, then in verse 19... Well, Nebuchadnezzar's face would be the only image on the screen. He's filled with fury. And look at what it says. The expression of his face was changed. And he orders that the furnace be heated up seven times more than it's usually heated. That's just, in other words, as hot as it can go. And then the three men are thrown in. They're fully clothed. They're bound. There's no way for them to escape. It is brutal. And Nebuchadnezzar is so determined to exterminate these men that he will allow others, he will allow loyal henchmen to die too. To die in the process. There's, there's so much indifference to human life here. There's so much sin fueling these flames. And then the miracle happens. Suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar, he sees four men in the flames. And he thinks that his eyes are playing tricks on him. One of the commentators points out that that sometimes if you look into a fire, you can kind of see images or things dancing around, can't you? He sees these four men. He sees that they're unbound. They're not hurt. And the mystery man, he sees him. Now, you'll not be surprised that uh, just like the vegetable test in chapter 1 and just like the change of language in chapter 2, the the commentators, they love to speculate about who this man might be. 
Uh, for some, it's the angel of the Lord, a figure who appears at various points in the Old Testament. For others, it's uh, a pre-incarnate Christ, vision of Christ. But what matters most is that Daniel's friends are delivered. And I think Nebuchadnezzar's response, it shows us just, just how unstable he is. He, he still feels at the end of the chapter, I think, he still feels very dangerous, unpredictable. He praises, verse 28. He issues this great proclamation in verse 29. Then in the final verse, he promotes, but there's, there's still such brutality in him. See, look at the consequences he, he promises on, on those who won't do what he says. Sometimes God's people are called to live under leaders like this. The kind of leaders who don't even really know their own mind. Who don't quite know what they're going to do next. Above all, though, what I think this miracle is reminding us of is of the presence of God in the midst of his suffering people. It's telling us that when we walk through flames, he will still be with us. This chapter, it's echoing words we sang earlier. When we face fiery trials, when we feel completely overwhelmed, we can know that Jesus is a Savior who will not abandon us. I think Daniel chapter 3, it's also echoing these words, Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Some of you are wading through misery tonight. Some of you are facing things that you never thought you'd have to face. But you have a Savior, and you have a Savior who is right by your side. He's promised to never abandon you. His care for you is constant. You see, what's amazing, I think sometimes it's the little details in a story like this. Um, in verse 27, everyone's called to gather at the statue. Gather. They've been gathered at the statue. They're gathered now to see what God has done. And what's so amazing about these men is that not even a hair on their head has been singed. It's hard, isn't it, not to think of the words of Jesus. God, our Father, knows the hairs on our heads. He saves the helpless. And just like these men, he's able to save us from death. You see, I said earlier that you and I, we might never face the kind of moment that these men faced. But that's not actually true, is it? Because all of us will come face to face with death like they did. What happened to them will happen to us. But death is a foe that Jesus has conquered. Death for the Christian is the path to life. And even if in the mystery of God's sovereignty, God chooses not to take you or I out of terrible trials, even if you die or even if you die for your faith, 
Well, Jesus has given you his word. Jesus has said, I will not let go of you. As you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as you face that final great trial of death, he will hold your hand. Because he is the king who knows the way in and out of death. Jesus is the one who has passed through the the fire of God's judgment. His resurrected body, it still bears the marks of our deliverance. And soon, maybe very soon, you and I will see, you and I will see those glorious scars. Well, let's pray together.